If you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And we should be getting done with Luke chapter 8 tonight. And we will be starting in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Once you are there, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And Jesus went, and as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceived power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. You may go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, upon hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Then he came to the house. He allowed no one to enter with him except for Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. As we are uh, now continuing our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to Luke, uh, we come now to this uh, section where we get not one, but uh, two healing miracles that take place in the span of about 15 or 16 verses. And in in keeping with the theme of what Luke has been developing for us, uh, we've been seeing the authority or the sovereignty of Jesus over a multitude of different uh, realms or places in the world. Uh, He first demonstrated his sovereignty over nature in the calming of the sea. He then demonstrates his sovereignty over the the demonic forces and the evil spiritual forces by his exorcism of the demoniac and all the demons that possessed him. And then in in this section, we uh, now come to two different demonstrations of sovereignty. One, first and foremost, over disease that afflicts the woman, and then over death itself, which afflicts the daughter of Jairus, or Jairus, if you uh, pronounce it that way. Uh, So in this section, we have uh, that kind of conclusion of thought over the whole uh, 
part of chapter 8, the development of thought. And really, though, these verses are kind of bound together with this central idea that Jesus is a solution to our suffering. He's being presented by Luke as a solution to our suffering. And that is evident right off the bat because, again, in this account, we don't just have one moment of suffering, not just one kind of suffering, but two different people in two totally different strata of life, in two totally different uh, places in society, in two totally different seasons of suffering, experience two totally different kinds of suffering, and both of them are addressed and dealt with by the hands of Jesus almost without effort. And you see that as the story unfolds. Uh, the first thing that we're told uh, in the text is that it's, this happens as soon as Jesus gets back off the boat on the other side. Now, if you remember the full rapidity of what Luke is doing, he first uh, does, some, does some healings, does some miracles. Then he travels over the sea as, he's, as they're traveling over, uh, over the lake. They encounter a storm. He has to calm the storm. He has to calm the disciples. And then he gets to the other side, to the land of the Gerasenes, and he bumps into the demoniac. He, he heals him, and then he's immediately kicked out of that region because he's no longer welcome there because you remember that incident with the demons and the pigs and how then people, whether it's because of his power or because of the pigs jumping into the lake, they are now afraid of Jesus. And so they, they kick him out, they expel him, and now he's back over to the lake, back where he originally came. And now uh, it's as if he just barely gets off the boat, just like when he got to the land of the Gerasenes. Uh, now he is back to the other side and again back uh, with, with a lot of people needing his help. In this case, we're told not that he's, he has a hostile audience, but in this case, uh, the crowd is actually welcoming him because we're told they were waiting for him. Likely, since before he went across to the other side, they were waiting for him, uh, hoping that he would, he would come back. Now, something that's not too subtle in the text of any of the Gospels, but especially at this point in Luke, is the emphasis on the crowd, which is kind of constantly around Jesus and observing what he's doing. This is going to become a key idea because from this point forward in Luke's Gospel, the, the stakes continue to get elevated as Jesus continues to have encounters with um, the high priests, the, the religious leaders. And something that is, is an important part of this is this is not just done in silence or only in the academy. Jesus does all of what he does in, in public for every single person to observe and to see. And so he's not just uh, trying to intellectually persuade the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He's not trying to persuade the religious elite. He's doing all that he's doing in the presence of basically anyone who would be around to see and to observe. And so here he, he comes to a crowd and we're told that all were waiting for him. We, we don't necessarily know why. Perhaps some were interested in his, healing, uh, his healings. Perhaps some were interested in his teaching. But we are told about two individuals that are part of this crowd, two individuals that get singled out by Luke. Uh, the first individual we're told of is J of Jairus. Uh, he is a man of great stature, great renown. We're told that he is the leader of the synagogue or the chief or the ruler of the synagogue. And to understand what that means, he's not, uh, he's not a high priest. He's not part of the Pharisees or the Sadducees. But in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, how the synagogues would work is much like local churches would work today, where there's not one central synagogue where everyone has to come to to worship. There's lots of local synagogues kind of spread throughout the communities. And so for one to be a leader of a synagogue would be much like being a lay elder in a church. It's someone who's not an official teaching rabbi, but it's someone of great respect, who's, who's a, a man of reputation in the community, someone who has commanded a faithful observance of the Jewish laws for probably the majority of his life. 
Uh, he probably carries great uh, reputation in and through the community. He's a man who people would trust. And this person uh, is a leader of one of the local synagogues in the area. And he's the person who comes to Jesus first and foremost with need. Now that's strange considering how much friction Jesus has had with the rulers and the authorities of the Jewish religious uh, system. Uh, we could conclude one of two things. Either that there are, there's a division of opinion among the Jewish people about Jesus, meaning some of the rabbis are uh, sensitive towards him and maybe persuaded by him, and some of them are not and are hostile, and those are the kind of two accounts that we get. The other option, the other potential here, is that Jairus is kind of going out on a limb with both his reputation and his, his status in the community because of his desperation for his daughter. So one of two things is possible. In either case, Jairus is kind of setting himself apart from the rest of the Pharisees that we've encountered so far in the text. And although he's part of the synagogue, part of the Jewish system, he's kind of standing apart from other leaders in that system. And so he comes to Jesus and we're told uh, kind of in a state of desperation, falling at Jesus' feet and imploring Jesus to come to his house. Now it becomes clear why that is the case. It's not him who needs healing, or rather it's his only daughter. This might bring to mind a previous miracle that Luke has recorded where uh, the centurion has a servant. It's his a favorite servant or a beloved servant who needs healing. In this case, uh, again, just like Luke has been doing previously, he's amplifying the stakes of the miracle that's at play. Now it's not just a beloved servant in the household of a Gentile. Now it's a religious leader whose only daughter is dying from some unknown disease. Uh, the, the language would say she's, at, she's kind of at the precipice of death. She's knocking at death's door. And so he comes out of desperation to seek, her, uh, to seek her healing through Jesus. We're told that he falls at Jesus' feet, pleading for his only daughter. And then uh, before we get a response really from Jesus, uh, we're not even really told about much of a response. We're just kind of told that as Jesus went, we're kind of to assume that he uh, obliges the man's request and goes with him. And we're told that as he's going, the crowd, which was there on his arrival, is now pressing in around him as he's traveling to Jairus's house. Uh, they're pressing in closely, pressing in tightly. That detail becomes important because the next person we're told about is someone who's not supposed to be in a crowd at all. The next person we're told about is a woman who has had a discharge of blood for about 12 years. Now that might seem insignificant to us. We're, we might put that as one of many illnesses. And for us as, as Westerners, we don't consider uh, physical illness to be in any way correlated to spiritual uncleanness. But remember, this is a Jewish audience, and uh, these Jewish people would have been well aware of the fact that if she has a discharge of blood for this, this period of time, she would have been unclean for basically the entirety of that time. Now, that's just not me saying that, or that's not even the rabbi's teaching on this. That's actually out of Leviticus 15, 25 through 33. We're told of kind of all of the, the customs that go with a discharge of blood. Um, and Basically, it's assumed that at some point in time, these things will resolve in that Leviticus passage. But the point of the passage is for the entirety of the discharge, this person is to be considered unclean, which means much like a leper, they can't be in community with others. They have to socially isolate. They, have to, uh, they can't participate in synagogue worship. Um, so even if she's a faithful observing Jew, she cannot partake really in any part of the Jewish religious system because of this uh, physical affliction which ails her, much like the leper and much like his desperation. Um, but we're told in, in the case of this woman, not like the leper that he was, had leprosy for some time, but in this case, for 12 years, she has been suffering from this disease. 
Now, that kind of social isolation, that kind of uh, ostracization from society, from your people, from uh, the people to which you would have belonging and identity, for 12 years, you can just think about how much suffering she would have had to endure. This is a different kind of suffering than what Jairus is experiencing. Jairus is experiencing suffering of like an acute kind, of an imminent health crisis with his daughter, a relational suffering, the fear of loss, the fear of the, the suddenness of it all. Her suffering, the woman, uh, is a totally different kind of suffering. Suffering nonetheless, but on a totally different scale. Not acute, but long-term. Uh, not for someone else, really for herself. And it's not that she really belongs to society in any kind of meaningful way like Jairus does. She's actually completely on the outskirts of society. And Jesus can deal with her suffering, or she's hoping that he can, um, just like he's now already told in the text that he's kind of going along with Jairus to deal with the suffering that he's facing. What's interesting about this and why I point out that, you know, there's a crowd pressing around is the next thing we're told about this woman is she spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. But her goal, we're told in verse 44, is that she wants to come up behind Jesus and touch him. That's her plan. She's going to go do that. But the reason to point all that out is because this crowd is pressing in all around Jesus. So for her, an unclean person, to get into the crowd that's all around Jesus and then try to touch him would be a total violation of basically every social thing that could be done in this time. She's supposed to stay away from people. She's supposed to identify herself as unclean. She's supposed to stay away from the congregation. She's not supposed to be anywhere near the synagogue. She's not supposed to be near any leaders of the synagogue because if she comes in contact with them, she makes them unclean according to the law. And so for her to take this kind of a risk, much like Jairus sticking his neck out away from his safety net for the healing of Jesus, she's really sticking her neck out. And if she gets caught doing this, she could be in a lot of trouble from the community. More isolation, more, uh, more being put away from people than she's already faced. But she's so desperate after 12 years, she's saying, I'm going to take the risk, I'm going to do it. And this is kind of building the tension for us in the text. Because the other thing that we're told about her, her discharge is, and this, is, this is, comes along with a, a chronic kind of disease or suffering. It, Jairus is likely at the, at the desperation point because of time. He doesn't really have anyone else to turn to, so he's going to go to Jesus. Uh, for this woman, it, Luke actually explicitly tells us she's done everything else she possibly could to find an alleviation from her suffering to no avail. So she's going not for a desperation of time, but really just kind of at the, at the edge of her hope. And we're not even told that her suffering at this point is just physical. We're actually told that she has spent her entire life, her entire livelihood, trying to get healing done for this. You can imagine how much it would mean to her to be part of the synagogue, part of her people again. And she can't, and despite how much money she has, she cannot buy acceptance. She cannot buy herself to be clean. And so now, out of desperation, she, like Jairus, has to approach Jesus and, and stick herself out onto a limb to see what would be done. And in verse 44, we're told that she gets behind him, she touches the fringe of his garment, and then the healing, which takes place almost passively, happens immediately. And immediately, her discharge of blood has ceased. This language of the instantaneous nature of the healing is something that is, is, is always marking the supernatural healings of Jesus. If you want to know, did something divine just happen? You can ask the question, could it be explained in any way by natural means? And if it can be explained in any way by natural means, it's not supernatural, it's not miraculous. But because it's an instantaneous healing, we know that so, this is not Jesus, a physician who's given her a balm that could treat her disease 
in a, in a physical or a natural kind of way. He supernaturally heals her of her physical disease. Now, if, you're, uh, if you grew up in the West like me, and you, you love medicine, you love science, and you value the contributions of the medical community, this might seem like a, a spit in the face on something like that, that we don't need to believe in science or believe in medicine. Luke's actually a physician himself, and he's just emphasizing that it's not that Jesus is saying, don't seek medical uh, advice or don't seek medical healing. His point is that medical healing couldn't deal with her problems, but Jesus can, and Jesus was pleased to deal with her problem. So Luke is emphasizing not that physicians are not to be sought, but simply that they were not the solution in this case. It's something supernatural, something that needed to happen that defies our understanding. And so uh, immediately the flow of her blood ceased, the discharge of her blood ceased. And now there's one more step, according to Leviticus, that needs to be done, which she needs to go present herself to the priest for her to be pure. And she needs to provide means of purification, and then she can be accepted back into the community, I think, after a period of seven days of isolation. So she's still got more to do. She's not now welcome and accepted back. And especially if she has a reputation of being the person who for 12 years is isolated, it's not likely that she'd be welcomed back with open arms. And so it's interesting now what Jesus does or what Jesus orchestrates to make sure that everyone is aware that she is now clean. He pauses. And he says, and there's a whole crowd around him pressing in on him. And he says, who was it that touched me? And everyone picks up on how strange of a question this is because everyone, even probably the people who have bumped into him are denying that they did it. And then Peter, who's close by him, turns and says, what are you, what are you talking about? Someone touched you. Everyone is pressing in around you. Everyone's touching you. It would kind of be like if you were uh, at a music concert and uh, you're, you're dancing uh, with people and then all of a sudden you go, oh, who bumped into me? Well, everyone's bumping into you. Everyone's around you. You're bumping into everyone. There's no uh, expectation that that won't happen. But Jesus specifies this question a little bit further, and he's saying, no, 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 I'm not talking about the physical touching of, uh, that, that would happen if he was in a crowd. He's saying, someone touched me, and when that happened, power went out from me. I perceived that power had gone out from me. And that's a strange thing because this, uh, for many people, causes a, a question mark on what exactly is happening. How can Jesus say that power goes out from him? Because, you know, he's divine. He should have a limitless supply of power. He shouldn't even feel the effects of it, right? Why does it seem that this miracle drains him? And I think at this point, again, the Gospels are not trying to uh, present Jesus as something that he's not. They're presenting him both as divine, being able to deal with disease without asking uh, for help, and as human in that he has not an infinite supply of power within him. He's dependent as we're told by Luke and by the author of Hebrews, he's dependent on the Holy Spirit for much of his miraculous working in his earthly ministry. Uh, we're told that when he's anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, that this is when his miraculous healings begin and when they start. And we're told that that's how he resists temptation. That's actually the author of Hebrews concludes that Jesus was presented as a perfect sacrifice by the eternal Spirit. And so he's dependent on the Spirit. And so he's, he's simply observing from a human lens that this power which he gets from God which he gets from the Spirit of God, is something that he perceived has flowed through him out to heal this woman. And then the woman, who's probably nearby him when he paused and stopped and observed all these things, um, instead of fading away into the crowd, she recognizes something. She recognizes that she is not hidden. Or some would say uh, she recognizes she's not able to get away without being known. And when she recognizes that, there's kind of a bunch of things that are going to happen at the same time. But chief among them, is the reality that she's about to be exposed for all to see. 
her plan to sneak quietly into the crowd to receive healing and to leave, that's out the window now. And so the text describes her as trembling uh, at, the, at the awareness of this. And more than that, if she's going to say all that just happened, if she's going to identify herself as the one who touched him and describe how the power healed her, she's going to have to identify everyone from what she, was been, what she has been healed from. And actually the text tells us that she's trembling, she falls down before him, and she declares in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. So she tells everyone of her problem and how she had been immediately healed. And so if you understand the, the intimacy of that confession, the intimacy of that testimony, you can understand why she might come trembling to Jesus. It's not necessarily that she's afraid of Jesus. It's likely that there's this huge social stigma on what, what she's been healed of. And now she's going to have to confess publicly to everyone in the crowd why she came, what, what happened, and how she's now free from this uh, discharge of blood. But nevertheless, we're told that she declares in the presence of all why she has touched him. So her testimony is known now to the crowd. It's interesting. Uh, she declares uh, to this crowd some, a testimony out loud, and Jesus actually uh, kind of antagonizes her or, or gets her to say this testimony out loud with his questioning. And that's something that you want to keep in mind because later in this text, he's going to say, actually, don't tell everyone what just happened uh, to the parents of the, of the girl. And so we're going to have to hold those two things in tension. But first, uh, after she confesses or, or testifies about what he has done, how he has healed her, how she was, notice again, immediately healed, verse 48 says that he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, it should not be lost on us that this language daughter is, is not Jesus referring again to a biological reality that him and this woman are somehow related. But it should not be lost on us. This is probably the only time in the New Testament where Jesus refers to another woman as daughter. Usually he refers respectfully to them as woman uh, or, some, uh, or in other respectful terms. In this case, he refers to her as daughter. And remember, Luke has not long before this told us that Jesus actually identifies his family as those who do the will of God and who obey it, who hear the words of God and who obey it. He says, these are my mothers and my brothers. And so he's identifying his familial relationship with people as those who observe God's word and who do God's word. And now he identifies this woman as part of that family. He describes her as a daughter, meaning she, she's heard the word of God and she's actually done it. And I, we might say that's strange because all she's done up to this point is reach out in faith and, and be healed. And it's interesting that that seems to be what the will of God is, for someone to reach out in dependence on Jesus for saving. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, if you're thinking about that statement, your faith has made you well, we might ask, well, what was it about her faith that was so significant, so special? Jesus uh, elsewhere says of the centurion who uh, is seeking for his servant to be healed that I've not found any faith like this in all of, all of Israel. And it's so interesting because if you think about this woman's faith, it's not as though she's going to be the kind of person who's asked by rabbis to come and teach in the synagogue because she has such a deep insight uh, on theology. She actually has a rather mediocre, meager faith. She's actually got faith to the level of, I know I need to touch his robe, I, need, I know I need to get close. But that's kind of it that we're told about her faith. We're not told that she confesses to know who Jesus is and that he's God. We're not told anything like that. We're just told that Jesus commends her for her faith and refers to her uh, in a familial term as daughter. So scripture emphasizes this often, I think just with her uh, as a case example, it's never the quantity or the amount of someone's faith that's important. It's always the quality of someone's faith, what their faith is aimed at. 
If your faith is in Jesus, no matter how small, no matter how meager, that's a faith that will thrive. But if, uh, as, as some in the world today would say, oh, I'm a person of great faith, or we refer to people as people of faith, and then often the next question right after that is, well, uh, faith in what? And as if you need to hone it down. And the, the, the sad reality is, if the faith is in anything besides Jesus, it doesn't matter how much of it you have. It's a foolish faith. It's a, it's a, a lack of quality kind of faith. It doesn't matter how much you have, how much you believe, if it's in the wrong thing, it will fail. On the flip side, as a Christian, we can take comfort in the fact that if we have even the tiniest little bit of faith, even the most meager quantity of faith, aimed in the right thing, aimed at Jesus, aimed in trusting him, then that faith is a faith that, that stands, a faith that actually thrives. And in the case of this woman, it's a faith that heals her or makes her well, or as the text says, saves her. And Jesus then commands her to go in peace. Now that command, go in peace, uh, kind of is following the pattern of what Jesus has done. Remember, he heals or calms the sea and it's peaceful. He calms the demoniac and he's peaceful. Now he heals the woman and she's told to go forth in peace. And so it should not be lost on us that that is uh, language that's intentionally chosen and used by both Jesus and Luke. And then, as, as soon as this happens, we're, we're kind of told by Luke that there's a whole other event that's going on. Remember, an event that Jesus was initially going to do um, that comes back into play. Because in verse 49, Luke turns our attention back and says that while Jesus is speaking, while he's still speaking, someone comes from Jairus' house, from the ruler's house, and he comes and he says, don't bother the teacher, don't bother Jesus, your daughter, she's dead. Now that's a strange thing considering that Jairus was the one who was so desperate to go to God that he, he goes to Jesus and he says, I need you to save my daughter. She's on the brink of death. So it seems that they believe that Jesus can save her right at the brink of death, right at the precipice of death. But after she's gone, it seems that that's kind of where their understanding of Jesus's power stops. That's what at least the, this servant uh, seems to indicate, that Jesus should not be bothered because the daughter has now passed over. She's now dead. And Jesus hears this and answers him, answers uh, to Jairus, don't fear, only believe, and she will be well. Now, it's interesting. It's not Jairus who's making the request for Jesus to continue to come. Luke actually frames it as Jesus being the one who encourages Jairus now uh, to not fear, to not be afraid, and just to trust him, and, and it will go well. And that's strange because if you remember, Jairus is the one who comes with the initial request to Jesus for his daughter to be healed. And now he's the one who needs essentially encouragement to kind of go forth with the healing process. That's, a, that's an interesting thing because I, I reflect on that. And I think so often that, that is the case of us as Christians, where we were content to ask Jesus maybe for salvation, for justification initially. And then uh, somewhere along the journey, we go, oh, that's, this, this seems like too big a deal. And then Jesus leans in and encourages us to actually continue to work out our salvation, continue to walk in faith that this is not too hard for me. Jairus uh, seems to be aware that this next ask seems like a bigger one to him, uh, but Jesus would have kind of known the whole time that this was something that he was capable of doing. And where Jairus' faith starts to fall short, Jesus actually steps in to encourage him to continue leaning out in faith that the healing will in fact take place. He actually says, only believe and she will be well. He's now kind of giving him a promise that this is going to take place. And Jesus uh, essentially then gets permission again, or uh, we're told that he finishes the journey. He gets to the house, and now we're told a kind of strange event, which is that Jesus takes his disciples and the people who are traveling with him, and he segments them. 
And he, he doesn't take just the 12. He actually takes a smaller subset of them. He takes Peter, James, and John with him. And then the only other people who are allowed into the room of the little girl who just died um, is the father of the girl, so Jairus, and then the mother of the girl, so Jairus' wife. And that's it. Now, it's strange, and other Gospels tell us this, that, you know, during the Transfiguration, Jesus actually takes only three disciples with him to see that. And the text never explains why these three are taken out and the, other, um, the others are left behind. We're never told why. We are told, though, that it happens. So Peter, James, and John seem to be uh, a disciple's disciple, if you will. They're, they're, they get special treatment. They get uh, kind of a glimpse at the inner circle of the healing work of Jesus. And so they enter into this child's room. Verse 52 tells us that there's already people there who are weeping uh, and mourning. And Jesus tells these people, don't weep, for she is not dead, but she is sleeping. Now, it's worth asking, who are these people? Because we're already told that the dad and the mom are with him. And there was a crowd already with him. So who are the people in the little girl's room weeping and mourning? Well, it seems to, it's a strange thing to us, but there was a custom in those days that if someone was to pass away, weeping and mourning was a, a big deal, a big ceremony that would happen. And actually, people from the community would come. Remember, Jairus is someone who is a leader in the synagogue, so it's not like this would have happened in secret. So he's probably going to get a bigger uh, memorial service than most his daughter is. And there's also a strange thing where they would hire people who would be essentially professional mourners to mourn with them for the, for the lost. And if you think that seems strange, remember, when we, when we do wedding ceremonies, we hire DJs to, to play and to celebrate with us. Uh, people hire photographers to celebrate the big day with us. So it's, we, we do that as well for celebrations. We hire people to participate with us. And they just would do the same thing, but in the case of funerals. They would hire people to partake in essentially the mourning and the weeping with them. These people are probably, this is, their, this is probably their professional job. They're hired to do this. And so when Jesus says, don't weep for she's not dead, but she's sleeping, you'll notice their response, they laugh at him. Because, you know, this is not the first funeral they've been to. They know she's dead. They know she's gone. They wouldn't have been called if she wasn't. And they've probably been weeping around her and they've been in her room. They know she's gone. And so they laugh at him because it says, knowing that she was in fact dead. Now that misunderstands something about what Jesus is saying. He's not actually saying she's just in a coma. She's not really dead. This is actually the, one of the first indications of something that Christians later pick up on, which is the language of sleeping and death. And they get kind of linked together. Jesus will refer to Lazarus in, in similar terms. He's saying he's not actually dead, he's just sleeping. And then when his disciples under, don't understand, they say, no, Lord, we're pretty sure he's dead. And he says, don't you understand? He's not, I understand that he's dead, but he's going to be raised up again. So the language of sleeping is associated for Christians as someone who, even though they're physically dead, even though all the signs of death are there, Christians actually have a hope of being raised again. So you don't refer to a Christian ultimately as someone who's dead. Jesus would refer to them as someone who's sleeping, someone who has a death, but the death is not permanent. The death will actually be resolved either shortly or in the future. And actually the, the New Testament authors pick up on this and they actually write about the final resurrection and Christians who've died in between now and then. And they refer to them not as those who are dead, but those who are simply sleeping in the meantime. That's not to deny the fact that death is a real reality. And for, for us as, as humans, death seems like an ultimate reality. But for a Christian, death actually isn't really all that ultimate of reality. We're told uh, that there is a death, a physical death, but there is also a physical resurrection for those who trust in Christ. And so Jesus refers to this girl uh, in similar terms. That he, she's not really dead in that ultimate sense. She's simply sleeping because he's actually going to resolve this dead state just like he resolved the disease instantaneously. 
So they laugh at him, and he, he doesn't even tell us how he responds to that. He takes her by the hand, and he calls her, and he says, child, arise. And that's all that it takes. Immediately, her spirit returns. She gets up, and he simply directs, her, uh, directs people to get food for her so she can eat. Now, this is probably to confirm that this is not some vision that has happened where he takes everyone into a group trance and they all see this vision together of her really living spiritually some, somehow in the future. Um, he gives her something physically to eat. She's bodily alive. She's, she's physically really alive. The same way the Gospels portray Jesus when he gets, he gets up after his, his crucifixion, he resurrects, and we're told that he actually eats fish and he, he, he eats food. It's a way of confirming the, the bodily nature of the resurrection. And then we're told something strange, that her parents, although they're amazed, they're celebrating, Jesus tells them not to tell anyone of what has just happened. And that's strange, because if you remember, the woman, he actually, in the crowd, prompts her to say out loud what has happened to her, her healing. He tells these parents not to say anything, and with the demoniac uh, over in the land of the Gerasenes, he actually commissions him out as a missionary to essentially go and tell everyone what's happened. He actually does so as well, also with the woman at the well. He tells her after, he, uh, after she believes on him and professes who he is, he actually sends her and tells her, tell, tell the people about what has just happened. And so then the question arises, well, what's going on that Jesus tells uh, these parents not to say anything, um, but in other cases actually encourages it or seems to allow for um, people to talk about what has happened. And this is a strange thing, but there's probably a couple things at play in the text that would, would explain it. The first thing is that we know about the Jewish people, they love signs almost more than the teachings of Jesus himself. We're told a couple of times in, in John that Jesus actually refuses to do signs for the Jewish people because they seek signs and they're not gonna believe on his teaching. So it's likely that he's gonna restrain the testimony of his miraculous, his miraculous works because that's not actually the focus of his ministry. It's evidences of the truth of his ministry, but it's not the primary thrust of what he's doing. He comes to teach and to educate people about the kingdom of God, and the miraculous simply supports or undergirds that. And he knows about the Jewish people that they love signs, and so he's not gonna, he's not gonna try to propagate that as more than he ought to. So that's one layer that could explain it. The other layer that could explain it is that in the land of the Gerasenes, there's no expectation of what a Messiah is like. They're a bunch of uh, Gentile people. They don't have any political expectations for a Messiah. But in the land of the Jews, where you often see Jesus shushing demons and shushing people after he heals them or does miraculous things in their presence, you notice there's a political reality at play. The, the Jewish people actually seek to elevate the Messiah and have kind of a political revolution with their Messiah. And although Jesus is not the first person who they try to do that with, they ultimately do try to do it with Jesus on the day that he enters into uh, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, he's not the first person they do it with, and history would tell us it's also not the last person they try to do it with. There's other people who profess to be or look like messiahs who come after Jesus, and the Jewish people try to enthrone them as well. The last one leads to their execution and the destruction of the city at the hands of the Romans. So there's many people who would profess to be or look like messiahs, and by that I mean a political revolutionary. And the Jewish people wanted to politically enthrone this person on a, on a real physical throne in Jerusalem to reign over the Roman people. And Jesus is probably not trying to instigate that kind of thing from the Jewish people. So he's uh, in the land of the Jewish people, he's actually restraining the testimony. He's restraining the testimony of bringing a dead person back to life. And in the land of the Gerasenes, he allows the demoniac to preach freely because there's no political expectation of a Messiah. And he's trusting that this, this, this seems to be his discernment on the ground. Now we know eventually, despite his best efforts, 
word does get out and eventually people do try to enthrone him. But that's something he's trying to delay as much as possible, it seems like, in his earthly ministry. And then uh, these two stories, again, they kind of come back in the overall scope of Luke chapter 8 and tell us a whole bunch of things about uh, Jesus, about what he's like. But I think primarily they tell us that Jesus is not some calloused God who does not care at all about the plight of humans. Rather, it tells us that he actually can enter into and solve our suffering. It doesn't really matter if Jesus is sovereign over, let's say, nature, if he's not going to apply that in favor of people. As people, that's not a greatly comforting thing for us. It doesn't help us if he's uh, in charge or sovereign over the demonic forces, if he's not going to resolve to also care for us and protect us from them. It's, it's not important for us to know that he's sovereign over disease if he doesn't, he's not going to apply his heart affectionately towards people and take care of disease and promise to alleviate disease from them. It doesn't really matter for us if he can sovereignly deal with death, if he's not going to apply that to humans and actually promise a resurrection from the grave. But we're told in all these applications of his sovereignty that have been laid out, it's not just that he's sovereign. It's not just that he's powerful. It's not just that he's in control of these things. But he also seems to compassionately enter into human affairs and resolve human problems with his sovereignty. For example, the disciples feel as though they're perishing. Jesus calms the storm. He saves the disciples in that moment and, and calms the storm. The garrison demoniac, he actually totally transforms that guy's life by, by virtue of his sovereign power over the demonic. He's not just doing random displays of power to show off how strong he is. He's actually doing those things intentionally to heal people of real problems that they face. Same thing here with a woman who's, who's got the bleeding illness. He doesn't just do some massive healing miracle that could be in the eyes of all to see for, for no purpose at all. He actually enters into her reality and, and heals her of something that's close and intimate and, and real for her. He enters into her suffering and he solves it. And for Jairus, the same thing. He doesn't just heal some girl of death for no reason at all. He actually enters into Jairus' suffering goes into her home, puts his hand on her, and heals his daughter so that she might live and so her parents might have comfort. This is a God who enters into human suffering and cares enough to do something about it. And that's an amazing thought about the divine. That's a, a particularly Jewish thought about the divine. If you're a person who believes in the Greek deities, if you're, th think about you're in Luke's context, Luke is writing to Gentiles, and he's telling you about this God who's super powerful, powerful over everything. But he doesn't abuse his power and use it for his own political maneuvering, right? If you think about the Roman and the Greek gods, how often do they use their powers for their own self-interest and actually without kind of any regard to the effects that it might have on humanity? I remember when I was uh, growing up hearing about Zeus and all his power and how he pretty much just uses it for his own sexual exploits. That's pretty much all Zeus is good for. And that often leads to problems for humanity, not for solutions to humanity. And Luke is writing and telling the, his audience about a God who's powerful, more powerful than Zeus, more powerful than any of the other Greek pantheon, and who doesn't just use that power selfishly for his own interest. He actually uses that power to actually, despite, he doesn't even save himself on the cross. He actually enters into human suffering. He deals with human problems, and he allows himself to be killed at the hands of humans. This is a God who is hard to wrap your brain around if you're a Jewish person. If you're a Greek person, it's the same kind of thing. If you're a Jewish person, God is powerful. He cares about his Jewish people. He, he probably doesn't care about the Gentiles too much. And Jesus is defying kind of all these expectations as Luke is writing. He's a sovereign God as powerful as Yahweh. And he cares not only about Jewish people, he cares about Gentiles. 
He cares not only about the leader of the synagogue, he cares about the woman who's been unclean for 12 years. He can deal with all of their issues, all of their problems. And he does so actually without even trying to take credit for it. You know, he tells at the end, don't tell anyone about what just happened. This is a God who defies understanding. And I think Luke is intentionally painting that kind of a picture of God. Because the reality is that that is not something that's just limited to the first century. If you think about the very things that pull at our hearts today, you know, fear of the, the demonic, fear of spiritual forces, that's not usually something that's at the forefront of our minds. In the Western world, we pretty much have scrapped those things off as non-factors. Non, uh, Supernatural forces, forces of nature, you know, maybe once every five or ten years when a hurricane strikes or an earthquake strikes, we become aware of our, uh, our place in the world, that we are actually subject to the natural forces. But that's not a fear that constantly plagues us in the West. Fears that constantly plague us in the West are fears of disease and fears of death. We, we spend so much money year over year over year for uh, the staving off of disease, for the dealing with even something like the common cold. We can't even be sick with that. We want to feel good. We, we don't want to worry about disease. And we, don't, we certainly don't want to think about death. We actually spend a ton of money, and, and research would show we actually spend most of our healthcare money really at the end of a person's life, when disease is at its highest and death is at its most imminent, is when we spend the most money trying to keep it away. And so death and disease are, are two things that we still have not dealt with in the West. We, we are still afflicted by these things. And not you know, once every five years, once every 10 years, or when a good horror, horror movie drops. We are afflicted by death and disease almost on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour, obsessive basis. This leads to how, how we'll even choose diets that might promise us to live longer. Uh, we might choose health, uh, health choices that would cause us to potentially increase our chance percentage-wise of not suffering from certain diseases. We still are kind of in a constant state of affliction from death. We think about them as sovereign over us. And in a, in a real way, they, they really are. They're way stronger than we are. And just like this woman who physicians can't really solve it, there's a bunch of diseases that healthcare cannot fix right now for us. And that death is still something that healthcare is never going to be able to fix. There's some uh, sci-fi things that explore the possibility of uh, science dealing with uh, immortality or eternality. Um, but most of them are more dystopian realities, which would be the case. But Jesus actually comes in, and he, he has actually no problem at all dealing with both disease and death. No problem at all. And if you think that's striking for a society that has very little ability to actually deal with disease and death, that would, that's even striking 2,000 years later when we have a good grasp on disease, not so much a grasp on death, and we still wrestle with these things constantly. The text is telling us that Jesus is sovereign and able to enter into the suffering over disease, over death, and really compassionately care for his people in that presence. That's, that's an astounding truth. Because the comfort of knowing that there's a God out there who not just is powerful over something, but actually cares for you individually, to see you through it, to, um, to hold your hand, to uh, walk alongside you in it, it that's, a, that's a comfort that's way beyond anything that science or medicine can promise us. And it's, it's not just one kind of suffering in this text. It's both the acute, instantaneous, like there's been a car accident, someone's on the brink of death, I need God right now. And it's the drawn out chronic pain for a lifetime that cannot be explained or reconciled, and there's no solution for it. Both are present in this text. Both of them are also people on totally opposite strata of the social spectrum. A Jewish person respected by all who has 
a huge reputation in the community and really would have a ton of social capital, he, is, he needs God just as much as the person who's on the complete outskirts of society, who's a woman, who's unclean, who no one would probably care for, who has really no place in this society. Both of them, Jesus takes time aside and cares for them. This is a God unlike any other God. Think about God who enters into human form, human suffering, human pain and weakness. And then not only that, but when he's building up his own reputation in our world, he actually goes deeper down and enters into the lowest of the low classes to heal them. He's not just doing that for all humanity. He actually does this for the lowest of humanity. And this is not unique for Jesus. This is not a one-time thing. He does this uh, kind of as a, a total staple of his ministry. So much so that if we don't think about it too much, we actually miss it. He does it for the Samaritan woman. He does it for the woman who is caught in adultery. He does it for the woman who is diseased uh, and uh, afflicted uh, in this light. He does it, uh, as it, as it turns out, uh, for Mary Magdalene, who we're told is afflicted by demons. He does it kind of all over the place for the people who are the least of these. He does it for the leper. And he does it for Nicodemus. He does it for rulers of the synagogue. He does it for a, a centurion, really powerful in the Greco-Roman world. He can deal with every need of every person in every class across racial lines, across socioeconomic lines, across all kinds of suffering. And Luke is telling us by means of these, these several stories that he's now told that whatever your problem is, whatever your issue is, whatever the, the weakness and frailty of your humanity that you that you feel particularly, Jesus can deal with that too. Natural, demonic, sin, disease, death, he's got it all covered. And I don't know if that means anything to you today, but if I reflect on my week, my life, uh, you know, maybe one or two of these stories seem really far off for me, but there's one or two of them that land right at home about things that I constantly worry about, things that I constantly think about, things that I obsess over, that I will toss and turn about uh, at night thinking about my frailty in light of, in light of God. And, and God, through Jesus, is revealing himself to be someone who can deal with that and is actually pleased to do so. He goes out of his way to stop, to heal, and to be the God that we actually really needed the whole time. But honestly, we probably didn't know we needed. And there's a last piece to this, which is the character of Jesus to kind of come alongside both the woman and Jairus and encourage their faith along the way. The woman seeks Jesus to be healed, having no expectation really of what that healing would look like, just being so desperate she needs it. And Jesus actually encourages her by means of his questions to actually confess out loud all that has happened and the immediacy and the, the beauty of that healing. He comes alongside, he encourages her to, to, to say this testimony out loud. You are not your old unclean self. You are now this person who is freed from your uncleanness. And she's now got a powerful testimony that everyone has heard. And she's now no longer the unclean person. She's the person who's been healed. It's an identity shift. And with Jairus, uh, he similarly enters into his pain, where Jairus initially asks for healing for his daughter who's on the brink of death. And then when his daughter passes away, his faith fails, and Jesus comes right alongside him and says, you believe, I'm walking right here with you, I've got this. And that's a comfort as well, because I think so often we might perceive our faith as something that we might have initially, but we could later disqualify ourselves from. And here the heart of Jesus on display is he's not going to let go of us when we have a faith that fails. He's actually going to walk right alongside to encourage, to strengthen, and to be essentially right there at our weakest moments. 
This is a God that I think Luke is telling us is worth worshiping. And I think that if you're persuaded like I am of what Luke's arguing, he is certainly a God worth worshiping. Jesus, who is fully God, fully divine, and yet human entering into our pain, entering into the least of our cares, the things that we might think are trivial to a God who's never done this. And yet the authors of Hebrews tells us that he's a savior who actually knows our frailty, knows our weakness, and he's actually suffered in every way as we have suffered. He knows who we are, he knows what we are like, and he's still pleased to save us despite really many of the things we think would be disqualifying of a divine relationship. And yet, he's fully divine and fully holy. This is a God that totally defies expectations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for, particularly for the testimony in the life of Jesus that encourages us in our weakness, that uh, assuages our fears, that speaks to our suffering. And Lord, for our, our weak uh, and often fleeting faith, would you please uh, encourage us to come alongside, to strengthen us, to give us confidence to approach you with all of our ailments, all of our pains, anything that we think you cannot deal with, would you encourage us to bring before you? And Lord, we know that you are faithful and just to do all that you have promised in your word, to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us of our unrighteousness, to make us new creations in you, to deal with the old man and to cause a new spirit to be alive within us. Lord, these are all things by your word that you have promised us by faith we can uh, grab onto. And I pray that uh, you would give us that faith that we may grab on and we may hold on and we may be found with you on the day of your return, pleased to see your face. Lord, we thank you for that promise as well. Pray this all in your holy name. Amen.